Welcome to the Workplace Happiness Podcast, brought to you by me, Mark Price, and my platform, Engaging Works, designed to help you be happier at work. Having been the boss of Waitrose for many years and working within the John Lewis Partnership, I became interested in the way that we work, how being happy at work can not only transform an individual's life, but how it can also transform an organisation. So my mission is to get the world a little bit happier at work. In doing so, I've created a happiness survey, which measures and then compares to others how happy you are at work. It's free to take, and you can find out about it at engaging.works. In the Workplace Happiness podcast, I'll be speaking to people from all walks of life about how they work and their happiness at work. From people who've had career changes to entrepreneurs who forge their own career paths. It's all about happiness and how we recognise this happiness at work and all get a little bit happier. On this edition of the Workplace Happiness Podcast, I am absolutely thrilled to be talking to Anne Fine. Anne Fine is a particular hero of mine. She's a children's author, but also an adult author. She's written more than 70 children's books, um, and she has a long list of achievements. She's been the children's laureate. She's won countless prizes. Her books have been made into films. If any of you have seen Mrs. Doubtfire, that's from her children's book, Madam Doubtfire. She has been enormously successful and a really super nice person with it. So I'm going to be exploring with her, her working life, how she got into writing uh, and what people who are thinking about going into a life of writing uh, might learn from uh, her experience now over many years being successful in that particular trade. So Anne, welcome. It's lovely to talk to you. Could you just start by telling us when you first had the thought that you might like to write books for a living? Well, I certainly didn't think that all the way through my childhood, because I think I'm of the age when you didn't sit and watch telly with people talking about what they'd just done, you know, those interview shows. So I don't think it ever occurred to me that that there were such things as writers. I think I thought that books were born on the library shelves. And uh, I must have realised people wrote books by the time I was a late teenager, but it never occurred to me I would. So rather curiously, given that this is a podcast about happiness, um, I wrote my first book in just coming out of, I think, a massive clinical depression. I mean, I was pretty well suicidal um, and, and I couldn't get to the library. I lived in Edinburgh. Um, it, was, it was a blizzard. There had been no gritting because it was one of the years of strikes. And I couldn't get the baby in the pram up to the library to change my library books. And in desperation, I sat down and started writing one. And of course, the snow melted, but I kept going. And I've been keeping going ever since, you know. And that first book, you sat down and you started to write. Where did you get the thought or the idea for your first story? I've simply no idea. I mean, most of my books start with the first sentence. I mean, I'm usually brooding on an idea. There's something that's bothering me or something that's interesting me. And then all of a sudden, you you just need something to set it off. 
Um, and I have no idea. I do know that I've never been more miserable before or since in my entire life. And that is the happiest, sunniest book I've ever written. And I have a feeling that it, it just indicates the pure escapism that writing can do um, for you. I mean, how you could just, you enter another world and, um, and make it yours. And I, I think I was just sort of lifting up a hand to save myself, probably. And so before that, Anne, at school, were you keen on writing and reading? Did you enjoy maths? I read all the time. I actually can't remember not being able to read because my mother and father had my eldest sister and they had me three years later. And then my father really, really wanted a boy in the days when you were allowed to say you really, really wanted a boy. And they tried one more time, even though they were dead broke and uh, they had triplet girls and you get help if you have quads. In those days, you had significant financial help if you had quads, but not if you had triplets. So the health visitor, because also those back in those days, you know, you could use your common sense. You didn't have to tick boxes and follow guidelines. And the health visitor said, well, I think that this one should go to school with her elder sister just for the babysitting. So I went to infant school at three for the babysitting and learned to read along with everybody else because nobody had explained to me I was just there for babysitting, obviously, so I just mm. learned to read. And I've never stopped since. In terms of your choices at school, because I'm sure there are there's some school children listening to this now and they're thinking about their GCSEs and their A-levels and their university courses. So you clearly love reading. You said you love reading. Did, did you write at school? Did you take an English degree? What, what did you decide to do? I, we wrote all the time. In fact, in those days, we wrote in every single subject. I mean, we wrote a, a creative writing essay a week. Uh, if you were even studying history, it was always an imaginative essay. You know, imagine you are a Roman soldier, blah, 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 and you'd be doing the Romans. So, so we did a fantastic amount of writing anyway. I did English O-level, which I enjoyed enormously, but I was determined to do Spanish. I, th I thought Spanish was what I wanted to do, and it con conflicted with English, so I didn't even do English A-level. And I didn't go on and do English at university, and I'm really glad now because I feel that I come at writing freestyle. And I do feel that a lot of the people I know who have gone and, and done English at university or creative writing courses afterwards or at university, they, they, they have given themselves an extra problem I have never had, which is they can kind of write their own negative reviews even while they're writing the book. They can actually see tutors and seminar friends looking over their shoulders saying, I think that's a bit, or isn't that a bit? And, and I don't have that. I mean, I just can sit down and let it go. And, and I don't have all the problems that somebody who knows more about writing than I do at an intellectual level, I'm not hampered by that. I mean, would you say that if you go to university uh, or some form of higher education and you do a creative writing course, that it actually might constrain your creativity in some way? I, I think that might well be true for some people. 
I really do know people who've started the course and been miserable. And I kind of think it depends what sort of a writer you are. I mean, I, for example, am an extremely private author. Uh, when I was seven, I wouldn't let anybody read my stuff. I was the sort of child who, if somebody walked past my desk, would, would cover my work with my arms so they couldn't see it. And even when I became a grown-up, I would hide my work. I've never shown it to my family. I've never read it to my children. Uh, um, the first person who ever sees anything I do only sees it when it's I think finished. I don't discuss it with anybody or ask anybody's advice. And I would send it to my agent, who when I began was a lovely, lovely woman called Gina Pollinger, very fine children's book agent. And she was the first person who ever commented upon it. So I think if you're the sort of person like me, who really, as a writer, needs a tin box with a padlock more than, more than lessons, um, you know, maybe going on a course is just not going to work for you. And can you remember being good at writing at school? Can you remember getting gold stars and 10 out of 10? I can. I was the best. <laughs> I mean, I do remember sitting in a class once and Miss Morgan, who was teaching me, I was in quite a mood, actually, at the time. Uh, I suppose somebody had been acting up and we, we, she'd separated all our desks and she was marching up and down the aisles, ticking us off. And I put my hand out to stop her. And, and she said, well, and I said, could I be a writer? And she said, oh yes, you could. <laughs> it was no great compliment at all. And I do remember, I do remember tucking that away. And I knew that I was good at writing. I mean, even when I was 11, uh, my friend Gillian, and I wrote a book together, which I still have, um, the legacy and the trouble it caused or, or what followed. And we wrote it in a, a little French vocabulary book. And we, we wrote, read out a chapter every week. And I think if it had been garbage, uh, the teacher would not have let us read out a chapter a week. It was a very disciplined and academic school, so they wouldn't have wasted the time if it had been rubbish. So you obviously were very talented at English, you didn't do it for A-level, you didn't do it at university, you opted for history, you went to Warwick University. Surely, knowing that you were so brilliant at writing, when you finished at Warwick University, you must have said, I'm going to be an author tomorrow. No, no, I didn't even think about it then. I mean, my first job was for the County Public Health Officer of Oxford, and I was receiving you know, doing his audio typing. I mean, those were the days, I remember Jenny Murray saying on Woman's Hour once, those were the days when the average woman um, was working for a man as a secretary and, and the man would be less qualified than, than, than she would be. And that was absolutely true. I mean, I had an honours degree in history and politics and he had one O-level. <laughs> but I was still typing out his letters for him. Those were the days. But no doubt it's improving on them greatly, I would have thought. Well, I don't know. I don't know. They were such boring letters. And and no, it never occurred to me. It never occurred to me. And, and then I got married. And Oh, I worked for Oxfam. That was my next job. And I mean, it, it was easy to get jobs in those days. You just walked out of one job and into another. It's just extraordinary to think about it now, isn't it? I think a lot of authors don't write a book until they're either ill or have some time. And 
and in those days you gave up your job if you had a child people didn't say oh, are you giving up your job they said when are you giving up your job and we moved to edinburgh where my husband's job had taken us uh, i knew nobody I was in a top flat with no lift. It was an old Georgian flat. So there were 90 steps. I had a small baby. We had no money because it was the first year of the mortgage. And, um, and, and that's, I mean, I, I didn't even think being a writer. I just sat down and started to write. That's really how it began. And I didn't even know, for example, the most basic things about being a writer. I didn't know that women usually do not use the name they're using. I had taken my ex-husband's name, which is Fine. He was Kit Fine, a philosopher. And I was just using his name because I was using it. I mean, now I look back and I think, you know, a normal person would have used her own name for her own books. <laughs> there you go. I'm quite old, you see. Going back to that first book, Anne, there'll be so many people listening to this thinking, I've got a book in me. So we understand the circumstances. You can't do what you wanted to do, which was to go to the library. You're sitting at the kitchen table. You've got uh, a bit of paper. Do you have a pad, the writing pad, or what did you write on? I actually can't remember, but I have a horrible feeling that I might have, and I, I have never done this since, but I have this trace thought that I just typed it out on an Adler Tipper portable straight out typed it i can't believe that i did that because i would never be able to do that now now i well for the next 15 years i used a pencil and a rubber and a pencil sharpener and just rubbed out and made a mess and did more and did it again and now i work on a computer um i it, it i can't tell you what a blur it was mark because it was you know, it was a really big depression. And as anybody who's been clinically depressed knows, it's just a horrible grey fog. I mean, I can't believe I actually wrote a book in the middle of it either. And, and did you write for an hour or two hours and you had the baby? So how do you, can you remember how you juggled your time? I, to wrote, write? I wrote whenever the baby was asleep. I mean, yeah. whenever she had a nap, I wrote. And I did. we didn't have nannies and we didn't have... Um, there was a, a daycare centre you could take her to when she was a bit older to socialise, but you had to be there. So, um, so, so, so I, I'm just terribly good at downing tools when the moment comes. And I do thank my school for that, because one of the things we really did learn to do at Northampton High School for Girls was concentrate. And I know when I'm concentrating and I know when I'm not, and I have this, uh, I think it's actually a gift for if I sit down and start to work um, instantly, I am to concentrating totally. And as the years went by and the children got older and started going out to school, and by then we were moving all over America and Canada and everywhere, but I still had this real smart way of leaving the kids pushchair at the nursery and running home because it was quicker and doing two hours work and then running back and picking mm. the first to leave the child and the last to pick her up I mean this was not a full day thing we're only talking about three hours or something but I would work all the time um, I'm, I'm quite hard working actually 
I, I look at myself now and I think you are really quite lazy compared to how you were in those days. I was completely driven. And I'd also, there were other tricks. Um, when I began, uh, not the first book, because as I say, the first book, I've got no memory of at all. But when I began, I used to have to clean, tidy up the children's bedrooms and vacuum the hall and clean the kitchen table and bloody, bloody, blur. And as I got older, or as the children got older, I just learned to walk through the flat or the house, wherever we were renting, closing all the doors so I couldn't see the mess and just wipe the half of the table that I would be working on and sit down and work. And, and that, <laughs> I think that's a real art learning because if you try and sort things out, by the time you start and sit down to work, by the time you've paid the bill, you know, cleaned the kitchen, run the washing machine, hung the stuff up, phoned your mother, the children are coming home from school. So you've, Got to learn. That's one of the skills to learn, isn't it? Push it aside. Just take us through how you write. So you said at the start that you'd start with a sentence, you'd have an idea. So do you sketch out your story in full or do you just have that idea? And then how do you write in the morning or the afternoon? And how many words would you write in a day? And how long does it take you to finish a book? All of, all of those sort of mechanics of writing, how do they work for you? Well, um, I prefer working in the morning or the afternoon, but I never work in the evenings. I don't do a rough draft, not at all. I mean, I, I, I think it would be fair to say that you could probably send chapter one to the printer because every sentence will have been written hundreds of times until chapter one's right. And chapter two will just be still being changed and corrected every every time I look at it because uh, I'm working on it. And chapter three might just be a twinkle somewhere in my eye. I might have no idea what's really going to happen. So the books are unraveled from the start. Um, and and often I have no idea because they're all character led. They're not plot led. I'm, I'm actually quite awful at plots. I can't think them through. I can't play chess. I can't, I can't do anything. That in, <laughs> my ex hubby once said to me, the problem with you is that you simply cannot think. And you would actually think that that would be taken as an insult and that he would find himself on the floor. But actually, I know exactly what he meant. I can't think. I can't think things through. I mean, there's always somebody better at thinking things through. So sometimes when I go back and look at a book, I think, well, I don't know how I worked that plot out. I mean, I don't know how that happened. Um, that's very clever. Uh, but, and I, I'm not sure about drafts because it seems to me that um, I have described it in the past as finding a book. Um, it's as if the book is there and you're brushing off sand, as it were, to find out where it is, uh, the structure of it underneath. You, you just don't know. And one of the things that has always interested me is sometimes, though I do not discuss things with my agent, I will sometimes just tell him a sentence. I'll probably, you know, just say something like, I'm going to write a book about this. And it'll be just one sentence. And then I'll have forgotten I said that. 
And then finally, two years later, he'll get the book and, and then he'll say, oh, well, that's what you said you were going to write. And yet to me, the book has been a mystery from start to finish. Uh, it is. And then how, many, how many hours would you write for? Anne? On Sundays, I won't write at all. I mean, I'm just not in the mood or I'm upset about something or, you know, when the children would get themselves into stews in teenage or something like that. If you can't concentrate, there's no point in doing it. And then I'll just go and do something that desperately needs doing, like <laughs> sort out a filthy bedroom or something like that. Um, on the days when I can work, I probably can do about an hour of new stuff, but going back and tarting up old stuff, or stuff that I did yesterday or the day before, I could probably do th three or four hours. But there comes, a t but I also think, and this is advice I would give to everybody. Um, and I, 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 I think you, when you read it through, I think one of the reasons why the books actually work is because I read them when I'm fresh and I'm always reading as if I were a fresh reader. Um, I come at them, I read them over and over again, right from the start. So I think, uh, I think I come at them as if, you know, sometimes I come at them fresh, sometimes I'm reading them tired, sometimes I'm reading them absolutely stone cold sober, sometimes I'm reading them with three glasses of red wine inside me. Um, and, and if they pass, if the sentences pass all of these tests, then I reckon there's a lot of people who want to read it. There's people who are you know, fresh as daisies, there's people who are tired, there's people who are sober, there's people who are drunk. Well, that's quite an audience, isn't it? Before you get anywhere else. So I think that my method works for me, but there is no one way to write a book. Absolutely no one way to write a book. I think people should have the confidence to just do what works for them. And then for our listeners, say something about the amount of time you're spending on the creative writing part, putting it down on paper for the first time, as opposed to your editing of what you've written for the first time. So you write it once, and then how many times do you go back, reread, rewrite, edit? Well, it's really editing. Sometimes it's editing and adding. Like um, you, you, you might know what's going to happen next, so you, you know, you write what's going to happen next. But then if you if you go back, you think, well, you know, we would know, wouldn't we? Or we ought to know what her mother was feeling about that. So we're going to have to shove in a chunk there where we somehow fit in a response so that the reader knows what this person thinks about it or what that person thinks about it. So sometimes when I say writing a chunk, um, I might, you know, absolutely canter through a page and a half, if you were to ask me three months later about that page and a half, that page and a half might have become 35 pages just by dint of, well, we need to put this in or we haven't explained that or um, maybe they'd like to know whether they were actually eating anything at this point. Or, and it, it's terribly hard to explain. Um, but it's as if a book goes forward in little psychological steps and 
I do have to say that, um, well, if you, if you miss that stage out, you have a half-baked book, don't you? I mean, you always feel, I'll tell you something else, I never, ever, ever sign a contract until I've finished a book, which is an indulgence that I have because, you know, I've got back royalties and stuff like that. Because so I never, ever, ever have to hurry a book. And I do think that that is what is wrong with a huge number of, of books that I have read in, in my past, that you can see that the first 60 pages are absolutely fabulous. I mean, you really think this is wonderful. And then it kind of turns into word processed stuff. And you know that somebody is just, oh God, I've got to finish this by October the 30th that gives me 70 days, that means I've got to do 12 pages a day, that means I've got to write 70,000 words a day. And you can almost see the chunks that are being churned out and, and you just end up putting the book down because it's lost its magic. And, and I think that this business of writing against advances and deadlines doesn't do literature any good at all. And, and then how long would it, and this is one of those questions I know you can't answer, it's how long is a piece of string, how long does it take you to uh, complete a book? Well, um, if it's something like, you know, Diary of a Killer Cat, which is about three or four thousand words, it will take maybe a week to do the bones of it, as it were, and three or four weeks to get it right. So it will be a matter of weeks for some of these very small books for very small children, uh, because they have to be dead simple, because the child's still at the pointy finger reading stage, and they're often reading in class where everybody's distracting them. So you can't do flashbacks and you can't do, you know, subtle observations. It's just got to be what happened next. And, and, and so they're very, very quick and easy to write. If you were to ask a book like Madame Doubtfire or Goggle Eyes or Flower Babies, which are for um, readers of nine plus, but you know, when they're done in schools, they might be done up to 12 or 13 because there's quite a lot of depth to them. Um, they would take about a year each. And, and I'm thinking as I'm writing, so sometimes I have to stop and think, what do I feel about this a bit more? And the adult novels, well, you actually feel like a piece of chewed string when they're finished, because obviously they're often seem to be more personal. Uh, they're not autobiographical, but you are um, tapping into things that happen in your own life or periods of your own life. Um, and they will take well over a year, sometimes up to two years. So the number of books sounds like a hell of a lot, but you've got to remember that a good half of those are for children under eight, and they are quick to write for when you've got the idea. Once you've got the idea, you're away. And you've lived in lots of different countries. Did that have any influence or bearing on your writing? I think it had a bearing on me. Um, I think one of the lovely things about moving is that you can slough off your old personalities. You can just become a slightly different person every time you move. There's nobody, Elizabeth Jennings wrote a beautiful poem about it, about the fact that you can decide to be somebody else and then you bump into someone on the street who knows you and you're immediately forced back into what they think you are. 
and and I loved that. I loved the fact that I could change as we moved. Um, I think it left me on my own um, to write, which I think is something I've been sensible enough to hang on to. I don't I don't talk to publishers at all about what I might do next because they're always on a roll, aren't they? I mean, they'll say, I mean, I have actually heard a publisher, this was m many years ago, but she said to me, and I'll tell you what's big at the moment, green books and horror books, and they're very big. Would you like to write us a green horror book? And you'd, you'd just think, oh, for God's sake, you know, really. Um, so I don't, I don't tend to pay much attention, which is not if you, if you need a contract, if you need time to write, if you need to buy time to write, and you've got to sign a contract for five books about mermaids or something, then you just have to do that, don't you? But one of the great indulgences of, of my life was that my ex-hubby was really glad that I didn't mind not having a job. And I mean, everybody else I knew had gone back after their children because we all had children earlier then and they'd all gone and done teacher's training and, and they'd become teachers. And I was in America where I didn't have a working visa. And, and, and if I'd insisted that I needed a proper job, um, we would have had to have gone home because he had one of those Einstein visas or whatever they're called, you know, we clever dick, nobody else could do this job. And there's no way I was going to get one of those. So, um, so he was quite pleased that I would just sit there in Arizona or California or Michigan or Toronto, or if we happened to be writing my novels quietly. And did, the, did that give you lots of inspiration for your stories, all of that moving around? No, no, I've, I've never, I've never been interested at some level in where I am. I mean, to be honest, all my books seem to me to be set in Northampton, where I grew up. <laughs> and and to, just for our listeners, what what do you most enjoy about your job, uh, and what do you least enjoy about your job? What, what I most enjoy about the job is um, not not having any colleagues. Um, I'm terribly bad at sharing terribly bad at sharing, not frightfully good at marriage. Um, and, and, and I always hated sharing. I think it's a very overrated thing. Um, and do you know why you feel that way? Have you, have you worked out why you feel I mean, that way? I think because I'm a control freak. I mean, even my teacher at school, Mr. Simpson, who taught me when I was nine at Wallastein County Primary School in, in Hampshire, even he, he had 41 in the class and he always let me be the one. So if everybody had to say, now choose a partner, I was always the one who was allowed, because he knew I hated it. I don't know that it comes from coming from a big family and having so many sisters around all the time, but he just knew I wanted to be left on my own. And I do. And I think many, many women, need many more hours alone men too probably but i know it's particularly true of women um than they get people spend far too much time with other people i mean the world is too much with us that's why so many people have been so happy in lockdown i have never been happier 
I almost hate to say it, but I've never been happier than I've been in lockdown. Uh, everything that I find tiresome about the job has been cancelled. <laughs> and I'm just left on my own here. And the other thing is I'm a control freak. I firmly believe that for something to be done absolutely right, the only thing is for it to be done the way I want it done. And of course, you know, with a book, you have to let publishers decide that the cover should be like this or the font should be, I mean, that, so, so I'm best, people like me are much better off left on their own. So have you been prolific in lockdown? I have. I started something on the 22nd of March and I have been bashing away at it ever since. Yes. I mean, I, I hope nobody who got cooped up in a small flat somewhere hot with no air conditioning in London doesn't ever listen to this because they will just want to come and thump me. But um, yeah, I've had a lovely time. Good. And you've taken the Workplace Happiness Survey. Yeah, I did very well. I got excellent. I don't think I've ever had 90% for anything. 90%? 90%. When you did that and you reflected on where you were most and least happy in all different elements of your job, what, what struck you about where you were most happy and where there may be even a, a little bit of scope to be happier in what you do? Well, when I'm most happy is when I'm sitting exactly you know, where I'm sitting now, in front of the computer, um, in a room all by myself. And sometimes children ask you, what does it feel like? And, and actually, the best way of describing it is, is like that moment when you're in an indoor swimming pool and the noise in the change rooms is horrible because it's all hard surfaces ricocheting the noise about and reverberations. And then you get into the screaming swimming pool and then you drop underwater and then it's all the noise just cuts out and it's you and your floating hair. And that's what it feels like. I sit down and within 10 seconds, I can feel my pulse rate coming down and I open up whatever file I'm on and I'm never happier. Um, I'm never happier. And, and the bits that I hate about the job, like everybody else, I loathe alarm clocks. I mean, I live up here in County Durham. So if I'm going to work in London, I'm going to have to catch an early train to get down there to do a day's work. So it's a horrible alarm clock. Uh, and, and then it's a 15 mile drive and then it's a two and a half hour train ride. And I'm the person who goes up and down the quiet coach saying, excuse me, you're in the in maybe I'll free compartment here and you know I really am an old bag on the trains <laughs> and when when you look back over your distinguished and amazing career do you ever reflect on what you might have done if you hadn't been a writer no <laughs> for you it was the only choice you wouldn't have wanted to be a, an astronaut or a, a train driver or a no, it wasn't a choice. I just fell into it. I mean, if it, it was never a choice. I just did it and didn't stop. And, um, and I do have to say that, you know, if, if, if somebody were to ask me now, is there anything you would have loved to have done more? I would say that I would have loved to have been an opera singer because um, I just think one of the most wonderful things must be 
I mean, I go to the, up here, theatre's quite difficult to get to in London, you'd have to stay over and everything. So I go to the live stream operas that come and, and you sit and you watch these people with these magical voices and, and you just think this is going to be, this must be, but then I think, God, they're traveling all the time and it's planes and trains and am I going to get a cold and am I, so the stress of it must be absolutely horrible. I don't take well to stress. I mean, one of the things that my depression taught me was to look after myself. I don't do stress well. I always have breakfast. I never let myself get too tired. Um, I know how to look after myself. And, and I know that I wouldn't manage to be an opera singer. I would just, I mean, I can't sing for one thing. So there's, a good <laughs> thing. I, mean, I can't carry a tune in a bag as Americans say. So th it's a non-starter, but this business of giving pleasure and, and, and it is, you know, but you get it as a writer. I mean, especially children are so generous. They do write the most lovely letters telling you, you know, your books, Step by Wicked Steps saved my life because, you know, blah, blah. And I look back on the books that um, I adored in childhood, that, that, that made me so happy in childhood, it, you know, banished all one's worries. And if I could go and hug the authors, I would. My own daughter, my elder daughter, adored the novels of a very fine writer that you'll know called Helen Cresswell. Very funny Bagthorpe saga. She wrote about seven about this mad family called the Bagthorpes. And, and one day she, she wrote a diary and she dedicated it, the diary, to, to Helen Cresswell, whose books sped me through childhood. And she'd written it in pink felt pen. And Helen Cresswell was talking at the Edinburgh Festival and I went running up there, I stole her diary. And I took it up to Helen Cresswell to show her and we, we, we had a moral discussion about whether it would be all right for me to go round these pink words oh. with black pens so that we could photocopy it for her so she could have a copy or whether if we tried to photocopy it in those days, photocopiers were rubbish, as you know. So, <laughs> um, you know, would she never know? It was so funny. Um, but that's how I feel. And did you do it? Did you photocopy it? Well, I went round it with pencil very, very carefully. And then I rubbed the whole thing out with a brand new rubber uh, that I actually bought for the, for, for the occasion. Yeah. And she never knew. And if she doesn't listen to this podcast, she never <laughs> <knew>. <laughs> Well, that's definitely the, um, uh, the punchline for a story, I think. And um, a, a couple of sort of quickfire questions for you. I'm sure everybody wants to know, what, what authors inspire you? Who do you read and you think that they're really good? Or you enjoy? I mean, when I was a child, I read what everybody else was reading, probably. I read loads of Anthony Buckeridge's Jennings books. I read all of William books. I still have all my old William books. When I was younger than that, I read a lot of Enid Blyton. I don't think authors inspire me. I mean, it's a funny question, isn't it? I don't get inspiration from people around. I mean, there are authors that I think are superb. I think Hilary Mackay is a lovely, lovely comedy writer. I think Geraldine McCorkran can write rings round all of us. 
I just think she's astonishing. And she is so prolific. I mean, we used to joke that the fairies came in and read, read her stuff overnight because she used to get so much done. And she has this sort of massive range. She can, she can bring, you know, she, she's written shortened versions of things like Moby Dick. If somebody asked me to, you know, do Moby Dick for small children without ruining it, I would feel like, you know, the princess who's, well, the, the lady who marries the prince who has to spin the straw into gold. I'd need Rumpelstiltskin to come and do it for me, but uh, she can do it. So I think the author I most admire of children's writers, of adult writers, well, same as everybody else, George Eliot, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, um, I, and, and, and all of those, incredibly underrated women writers of the 50s. I read everything. I mean, I read for th three or four hours every day, which just goes to show how dirty my house must be because, you know, I mean, really, I, I do read a lot. We talked about music and your fantasy of being an opera singer. <laughs> so uh, what piece of music makes you feel happiest? Happiest? Oh, God. Well, I was asked about this on Desert Island Discs and I found it one of the hardest things to do and not only that because the bloke I live with Richard um, kept wanting to interfere I mean he'd always wanted to be on Desert Island Discs so he had his whole list was trying to push into it the whole time but um, for lifting my heart I chose I mean, obviously, if, if you ask me what would you want to take to a desert island, it, it would be Bach and it would be Mozart and, and, and Beethoven and, you know, et cetera. Well, not that there's that many et cetera's for those three, is there? But Haydn. But for just cheering me up driving down a motorway, it would be dire straits. And my last question for you is if you could nominate anybody to sit down and do the Workplace Happiness Survey and reflect on how happy they are with what they're doing, who would you choose? Well, I'd be really tempted to pick Richard because he's still a mystery to me. We've lived together for over 30 years and he's still a mystery to me and you might be able to get more of him, more out of him than I ever have. But that seems a little bit personal. Um, who would I pick? Who would I pick? This is not one you should dump on somebody, is it just like that? It's quite extraordinary. Well, ask Geraldine McCorcoran. Um, I'd be very interested to know whether the fairies do come and do all her books for her. Um, I'd, also, I'd also be really interested in Boris. Ask Boris. I mean, we're, we're all curious, aren't we, about what actually... I mean, I know everybody has their theories about what makes Boris tick. And, and, and the ones that can't stand him have one theory and the ones that quite like him have another theory. You might be able to find the middle mark. You might be able to find out exactly what does make Boris tick. We'd all be interested in that. Well, with, with that challenge uh, uh, on my back now, can I just thank you, Anne, very much for um, uh, being on uh, this edition of the Workplace Happiness podcast. There's no doubt, both from your scores uh, and from all that you've said, that you've found great joy and pleasure in the job that you've now had uh, for many years, uh, more than 70 uh, books uh, for children and, of course, for adults. 
uh, and you've won so many awards for your writing and that's so deserved. Thank you very much for sharing with us all uh, how you write, how you got into writing and thoughts for how people who do write might improve. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening. And again, if you want to take control of your workplace happiness, go to engaging.works and take the free happiness survey. See you next time.